Hello listeners, this is Emmett. Welcome to your weekly installment of Exhaust, your podcast on why things don't feel possible. Today I'm going to be speaking with Frank Ferretti of the University of Kent, who's written the book Democracy Under Siege, Don't Let Them Lock It Down, out fairly recently from Zero Books. You should go check it out. Before we get going, I'd like to ask you guys to please rate, review, subscribe, please download the episodes and share. Let's get to it. So I was a huge fan of How Few Works when I read it last year. Uh-huh. I felt like it explained so much of what I'd seen happen to American culture as I came of age during the Iraq yeah. war. And I was delighted to see that you had put out a defense of democracy. Yeah, yeah. That was really quite important because uh, everywhere I looked, all the uh, academics and intellectuals that were writing on the subject were attacking democracy or questioning its legitimacy. And it just kind of struck me. In fact, I remember going to a bookshop in New York and going to the nonfiction section. They got a big table of all the latest nonfiction books. And there's about five or six books on the table, which were all against democracy, all uh, telling the reader what was really wrong with it and why we shouldn't have too much trust and too much faith in citizens and their capacity to make the right decisions. I think one of the funniest examples, and I've talked about it on the show before that I've seen is right after Trump's election, I think it was the Atlantic or somewhere that published a piece wondering if there's too much democracy, despite the fact that Trump won via the Electoral College, which was a check on the will of the people. Um, He lost the popular vote, in fact. And I thought, wow, these people are so ideologically committed to anti-democracy. It's their knee-jerk reaction for when anything that they don't like happens. It, no, it is. It's basically democracy is okay as long as the right people get elected. Uh, but the minute people vote in a different kind of a way, then they, they find some fault, either with the procedures or with the mental state of the people. And usually they say people are manipulated or people are a little bit too stupid <laughs> or um, the advertisers were somehow tricking people into, into things. They Media was to blame, and they never asked the question, well, maybe we lost the argument. Maybe we didn't manage to kind of convince people about our view of the world. And I think that goes back a long time. And it's interesting you mentioned the Trump election, because one of the examples they use all the time to explain why democracy is wrong is the election of Hitler, the Nazi party. But of course, Hitler never got elected either. In mm-hmm. fact, uh, you know, Hitler got into power as a result of a coup. And in the very last election, before he became chancellor, he actually, his vote decreased quite substantially mm-hmm. over the time beforehand. But the myth, mythology is, is that the German people elected Adolf Hitler, which is actually not true. It doesn't correspond to historical reality. No. And what I liked about your book is that it reached all the way back into ancient Athens, where we see sort of the germ of some of these arguments because Thucydides, Plato, Xenophon, Aristophanes, all of them have this idea that democracy leads directly to demagoguery. You know, that the people can't be trusted for that reason. They will make the wrong decisions and it will all end in catastrophe. Yes, and, and what's interesting, I mean, what I find fascinating about the Greeks is that uh, the Western tradition of political theorizing or political philosophy begins with people writing critiques of democracy. So even before anybody has said a good word about democracy, anybody has written anything positive about democracy, there's already a vast literature 
arguing that democracy leads to the tyranny of the majority. And that's, to me, is, is a fascinating thing. One of the things I've, I've done over the last few years is I've gone back in history, and, and there's, in fact, almost, uh, almost you know, no books written or no serious essays written defending democracy until very, very late in the day. Mm. You know, it's really uh, until the 19th century, democracy has a really bad reputation uh, and is used as a swear word by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, to me, that, that is kind of fascinating how rare it is when democracy is intellectually supported and upheld and celebrated. Right, exactly. So I teach the classics online and inevitably we read Plato's Protagoras. And one of the things I try to remind my students is that we might not be getting the best faith version of a Protagoran (laughs) defense of democracy. And we should keep that in mind as we move through, you know, I mean, it feels like there's a really firm relationship between the types of thing Plato was arguing for and the technocratic instinct to sort of depoliticize the demos and the polis and to rule by epistocracy, those who know, that we see today. Yeah, but the, but the epistocracy is really lacking in its own capacity to uh, make their superior ideas win the day. So uh, if, you, if you recall, Plato and the Republic goes to great lengths to argue for censoring Odysseus, you know, mm-hmm. the Homer, Homer, Homer stuff. He goes to great length to argue that we don't want poems and other things to be uh, available to people unless they've been very heavily censored. Mm-hmm. Because you don't want people to get the wrong ideas. So when you actually scratch the surface, you realize that all these eloquent philosophers who were 100% certain that they were so much more intelligent than these uneducated demos mm-hmm. never mm-hmm. actually went to, bo- went, went to bother to test out their ideas, never made an attempt to test out their ideas. And in a different book that I wrote a few years ago on, on reading, I make the point about how Plato, through the mind of Socrates, opposes and fears reading because he fears that if people read, they will get the wrong ideas. You know, you you can't trust the people to read and work things out for themselves. What he's really saying, it's far better if we leave people uneducated than to give them, you know, a few ideas. I mean, that's such a traditional debate, right? Is whether you're going to have encoded law or it will just be unspoken. I mean, that happens at America's founding too. And eventually people will get hip to the realization that, uh, well, if we're going to have a republic, I guess we have to write these things down. <laughs> Otherwise people won't know what laws govern them, right? But in the Athenian case, it's advantageous for the aristocracy to not have anything written down because it remains within their clique. You know, there's never a public facing element to the law. Yeah, and I think that uh, in the Athenian case, you have this situation where it is the, the demos who wants things written down. It's the demos that wants there to be laws because at that point in time, they regard the laws as, as kind of protecting their rights. And it's the uh, elite in, in Athens who are very reluctant to do that. Uh, in, in many respects, it's, it's almost the opposite to now where very often it is the political and cultural elites who want to have a million and a half laws to regulate everything. You know, and they use the law as, as a way of uh, managing in a technocratic sense, the, the day to the life of people. But in those days, the law was very much seen as a protector of the people, as, as was the case with common law in England. It was very often regarded by ordinary folk as something that you know, they could rely on to, to protect themselves against tyrannical, oppressive acts. One of the things that I liked about your book is the way in which you went about defending Brexit and those who voted for it, and that 
they did have their own interests in mind. They weren't ignorant. You might disagree with what they did, but they weren't fools. I think some of the conspiracy theories that were trotted out to undermine their vote, like the Cambridge Analytica scandal, have proven to be like Russiagate, nothing, um, and largely fabricated an ad copy for <laughs> other people who were trying to make money. But it did reveal this sort of anti-democratic element that somehow equates a nation state as a zone of oppression rather than a zone of sovereignty, but then prefers an anti-democratic internationalist setup like the EU. And that seemed totally bizarre to me. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Well, I think one of the interesting things that has happened in the last 80 years, but especially since the Second World War, is that a lot of a significant section of the political class has tried to insulate itself from political pressure by outsourcing its authority and outsourcing its responsibility to a variety of non-elected institutions, you know, from the judiciary, you know, sort of, we, I call that the juridification of mm. public life, to expert institutions, but also to international bodies. I think uh, in Europe, this is particularly pronounced, where the European Union serves as this body that, you know, in a sense, uh, manages and, 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 and takes responsibility for a variety of uh, decisions that are inherently political but does so outside of the uh, normal domain of, of public life and therefore is not susceptible to any kind of pressure. And I think that the uh, impulse in, 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 in our time is to depoliticize public life mm -hmm. and to turn those uh, issues, those political issues, into technical ones. They're decisions that experts are far better suited. And I think what the Brexit debate did was to bring that to the, bring that to the fore. And, uh, I always remember the horror of, of someone, because in academia where I work, you know, the vast majority of academics hated Brexit. And, you know, whenever I opened my mouth and I defended it, the way they were looking at me was as if I was somehow either a fool or in the pay of some kind of hidden conspiratorial yeah. force. So sort of dark right-wing cabal. <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. And, 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 and the interesting thing is, is that the, the way they were behaving, you know, sort of, and that contempt for people, you know, was the classical uh, sort of manner in which uh, old-fashioned right-wing elitist people used to talk. Now, they were uh, adopting their narrative, but then slightly rebranding it in a more leftish stone. But the interesting thing was they were not aware of the fact that in a different era, Mm -hmm. They would have been on the side of the same barricade as Franco in Spain or a, a variety of other individuals. You know, certainly they would have been on the side of the anti-populist forces in American history mm -hmm. in the 19th century and in the early 20th century. Yeah. You know, I had my own experience starting to really understand how that takes shape, especially with people who see themselves as progressive and advocating on behalf of, you know, human development and all of these things. And they're incredibly cruel and anti-democratic instincts. When I was speaking with farmers who had to deal with the wind industry destroying their land in America, and they had very legitimate grievances against what was happening to them. And especially if they lived in a college town, and they were just a quote unquote townie, they would get laughed out of the room quite literally, as they wept because the world around them was getting physically damaged in an irreparable way by an industry that had, again, could totally overcome any pressure that they would put on them and had this ideological, anti-democratic, progressive backing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is true. I, I hate using the word progressive now. Precisely for that reason. Yeah, because, same, same. Because people who use the word progressive on both sides actually misunderstand what being progressive is really all about. What you know, what its historical roots are. It, it, I mean, today being a progressive ultimately means having a top-down 
you know, sort of technocratic expert-led impulse, a, a very paternalistic yes. orientation of the world. And whenever I, uh, I go to America and I hear the favorite model of progressives today, it's always raising awareness. You know, we're raising awareness. And when they talk about raising awareness, what they're really saying is that me and my friends are aware, <laughs> you, you bunch of morons, are unaware, and we have to raise it, you know, somehow get it near the level we are. And, and it becomes a way of, of drawing cultural distinctions that, you know, we are morally superior mm-hmm. than the unaware hordes that we somehow have to kind of educate. And that kind of self-consciousness is really, I mean, it's, it's much stronger now in America than it was three, four years ago. And I noticed that now, especially with the recent events in America, you have the situation where that kind of uh, uh, sort of consciousness, what we call l'esprit de corps, has really kind of come together. We are different kind of people than they are. You know, we are, we are morally mm. better, superior, and you don't have to listen to them. You can just ignore them because they really have nothing positive to say. It seems like a way of preemptively just taking arguments off the table, which is one of the things you walk through as an anti-democratic instinct, right? Where it's like, we don't have to debate this. It's just the way it is. You know, like, listen to us. That seems to be part of the progressive instinct. Yeah, I mean, basically, there's an expression we now use on campuses, which, you know, the first time I heard, I couldn't believe my ears, which is to say there's no two sides to this debate. There is no debate to be had. Amazing, yeah. And, uh, and that, that kind of attaches itself to a lot of different kind of issues. But I remember this one incident where um, uh, one of my students came to see me and said, I don't know what to do. He said, what do you, you know, he's a law student. And I was saying, I don't know what to do because I was talking to my professor and we're discussing about gay marriage. And I said that I can, that I can actually see there's two sides to this debate. I can understand why some people think it's really important if people fall in love Mm-hmm. They should be able to get married, but can also see why some people think that it violates their traditional values and norms. And, and the student said, the professor just looked at him and said, I'm sorry, there is no two sides to this debate. There is no debate. That's it. You know, and I just thought when an academic says that to a student, you know, you know, we're in trouble. Yeah, that's a dark tiding indeed. And so one of the things that's um, a little bit in the background while we're talking about this is that the forces of anti-democratic thinking today, I mean, you said at the beginning, like democracy is okay as long as it does the things I want. And then when it doesn't, it needs to be reined in, which is probably not the best democratic ethos I've encountered in my lifetime. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you see democracy as a good in and of itself, because that's such a rare argument to come across these days. Well, well, for me, uh, the, the conclusion that I've drawn, and, and that's partially to do with my experience. You know, uh, I was a nine-year-old kid during the 1956 Hungarian Revolution, uh, where I saw people just, you know, sort of... Uh, arising and making a revolution from one day to the next, even though they were facing a, a real you know, tyrannical government, which gave me a lot of hope you know, about what people can do. I was also fortunate to be a 1960s person as a student radical, just seeing all the interesting things that we could do. And I got really a real buzz out of it. So I've got certain experiences which give me a, a lot of confidence that even on a bad day, people can rise to the occasion. Now, I know that there are a lot of bad days, you know, and, and as Hannah Arendt once said, you know, freedom is, is, a, is a miracle that makes a very rare appearance. But nevertheless, the, the conclusion that I, I've drawn from, from uh, studying politics and my own experience is that the reason why democracy is really so important is because when you live democratically, when you learn to argue and debate, when you uh, are, are, are put in a situation where you're going to listen to other people's arguments, when you're involved in this kind of uh, creative tension that democracy brings about, that really assists both your own development as an individual, but also the whole community. It's a, democracy for me is not a process. 
or not just a process. It's not just a way of electing people. It's a way of life. And it's a way of life that's got all kinds of positive cultural elements to it. So for example, uh, I always make the point that democracy, when it was invented in Athens, albeit in a very limited sense, was also invented in a place which at that point in time was the most risk-taking experimentative society that existed. And that wasn't a coincidence that these Athenians were really, you know, open to all kinds of ideas and they were taking up ideas, borrowing them, going out to the whole world as far as they understood it, exploring. So it was a very risk-taking society. It was a society that was very relatively more educated than anywhere else in the sense of reading and, if I, you know, inventing. And a culture of letters. Culture of letters, exactly. Uh, and because of that, they were able to then have an idea of history and historical thinking, which really didn't exist beforehand anywhere else in the world. So to me, all these things come together as a package. And when I look at other moments in history, when I look at the Republican uh, city-states in, in, in the Renaissance, you see traces of some of the same kind of developments uh, there as well. So for me, it's, it's a way of life. Uh, and that's why I think it's something that's good in, in and of itself. And I would rather lose an election. In other words, I would rather that my ideas were defeated democratically that managed to get my point of view, you know, sort of uh, into government, but without, you know, doing the hard grind of democratic, democratically winning the arguments. And I think that that to me is what democracy should, should be about. Yes, we spoke to Kyung Min Sun of the University of Delaware late last year, who wrote a book called The Eclipse of the Demos, where he problematizes the standard narrative that neoliberalism happens in the seventies and destroys democracy. And he says, well, you know, if you look a little bit backwards, at least in America, right around the thirties during the great crisis, the great depression, and then immediately after world war two, the anti-democratic moment starts to really gain a head of steam. And one of the things he says is that, part of the way that works is that you start to get these arguments that treat the state like a treasure box over which different groups fight. And there's no longer a conception of the public. It's rather just interest groups. And it seems like now that sense of the public is very much an atrophy, at least in my experience as an American. I don't know how it is for you in the UK. Well, I mean, that's an interesting way of looking at it. There, there's a lot of truth in, in that description. The way that I see it is that in the interwar period, democracy is in real crisis. And the reason why it's in crisis is because even people that were hitherto fairly democratic begin to say, well, why is it that the totalitarians are winning the arguments? And why is it that the fascists have, you know, are doing well in Italy? And you know, why are the communists growing here? You know, why are we being squeezed out of the picture altogether? And they develop a lot of these theories about the psychology of the mass and everything else. And at that point in time, democracy has got very few defenders in the 30s. But what happens is that because of the way the Second World War pans out, and because fascism is defeated, all of a sudden, everybody, at least formally, celebrates democracy. And, and in a sense, democracy makes a comeback. But the, the kind of democracy that makes a comeback tends to be fairly much what I call Sunday school democracy. It's a kind of democracy that you celebrate at, at mass on a Sunday right. the rest of the week. Yeah. Democracy kind of forget, just for Christmas, as you say. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You kind of forget about it. And that's really when you have the beginning of this technocratic process whereby you uh, and a lot of American political scientists end up celebrating apathy. They think that apathy is a good thing because, you know, they don't have to worry about the pressure from below. Mm -hmm. That's the point at which you kind of begin to celebrate what they call the end of ideology. That's the point at which uh, a more kind of uh, sophisticated form of technocratic thinking begins to kick in. And you really have to, you know, democracy is only celebrated as an ideological weapon uh, against the Russians, against the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. They're totalitarian, we're democratic. It's kind of used in that kind of globalistic, but extremely 
shallow kind of a way from that point onwards. And you'll find that nobody can say I'm against democracy. I mean, nobody can possibly say that after the Second World War. Mm-hmm. But the rhetoric of being for democracy very rarely corresponds to a culture of cultural democracy. I mean, there are a few honorable exceptions to this, but by and large, that's the way it kind of works through from the post-Second World War period onwards. Right. I think it's um, Nixon is talking to Khrushchev and he says, you know, like Americans are so free that like, you know, choosing their governor or whatever is the same as picking out a new fridge or something like that. There's this idea where it's like spot welded to the market and it's like you're just going to the grocery store rather than actually working with your citizens to figure out what's going on around you and decide who gets to govern and how they get to behave in relationship to you. I'm glad that you brought up this, these sort of psychological explanations. Some come from, I believe his name is Gustave Le Bon, who writes uh, uh, that book on the French commune that of dubious uh, empirical worth. And we've talked about it several times on the show, but also you harken back to your experience in the sixties. And this is something I've become very, very interested in the way in which uh, people like Marcusa and Adorno who are figures on the left end up being sort of brothers under the skin with somebody like Walter Lippmann, who almost recapitulates perfectly the platonic argument of the divided line theory of knowledge and why the masses shouldn't be involved in deciding anything. How does this happen in a, era that we consider to be radical, not to say that there weren't radical elements happening there, but it seems more complicated than our public memory allows for. Well, actually, Walter Lippmann is relatively progressive compared to Marcuse and Adorno, <laughs> because, that, because Lippmann occasionally you know, has this uh, guilt, guilty feelings you know, about democracy and about the public, and he would like to be a bit more permissive. Whereas Adorno and uh, Marcuse are products of this uh, European imagination, where they essentially misunderstand fascism and the rise of fascism, and they see the working class and the and the public as being somehow responsible for it, and in particular they see, you know, sort of their psychological makeup, uh, that kind of what they call their conformist psychological uh, makeup that leads to this authoritarian sentiment. And what they end up doing is the end of psychologizing politics. So in a sense, what happens, and this is a very important moment, is that uh, because they end up psychologizing people's personality, where you have, you know, these, they have authoritarian traits, they have liberal traits, they have radical traits, almost as if it's kind of a, a naturally given kind of phenomenon, they inadvertently end up politicizing the person. And what becomes in the 60s, the politics is personal or the personal is political, is actually the child, you know, the the baby of these uh, sort of authoritarian, psychologically minded, anti-democratic radicals Mm. for whom they think they're being very radical because they're criticizing the culture industry, they're criticizing consumption, everything else. But actually, it's what they kind of promote is this kind of old fashioned elitist disdain for the lifestyle of ordinary people. And that's really what it's all about. Look at these people, they go to McDonald's, you know, they junk food, you know, they, they like quiche, quiche and all the rest of that. Whereas we, we go to the opera and we have very sophisticated literary taste. That, that kind of sensibility is very much there. And then, you know, when you get to the 60s radicals, they imbibe that uncritically. They don't really know what's really behind it. And then they repose that, re-represent that in the form that we can now call today identity politics. You know, the personal is political. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all about me. It's my personality. And, yet, and the, moment, the minute you do that, you end up fossilizing your personality. You know, I'm a liberal. I'm, a, I'm an authoritarian. Once you have that, then the possibility of democratic debate and discussion doesn't, no longer exists because who we are is, is the same thing as what our politics is. There's no distinction between the two. Right. It's non-negotiable. And if you can't negotiate, then you've run into some major problems with having a democratic subjectivity, which, as you say, relies on a sort of free flow of debate and openness and flexibility to these things. 
yeah, and being open to change and changing mm-hmm. your mind. In light of all this, I guess that's why at certain moments, as you say, it's like we have this technocratic thing happening in the background, which is depoliticizing. But at the same time, we have this cultural experience that seems to politicize everything at the same time. How do these things fit together in your mind? Well, I'm just writing a book about this. Oh, I, well, I, great. Basically, <laughs> basically what it's about, what, I, what I'm arguing is that what you have is the convergence of what we call technocratic governance on the one hand, where you basically rely on, you know, on evidence, on research, on science, on experts. So politicians no longer say this is good or bad. They say, you know, research shows or the evidence is. So, you know, they kind of hide behind us. So, yeah, well, on the one hand, technocratic governance. And on the other hand, you have this mixture of identity politics with, with a kind of therapeutic governance. And what you've got in a sense is to see this. Technocratic governance on its own very rarely is able to enjoy legitimacy. It's, it's kind of too technical. It's, it, it lacks cold. that kind of too cold. It lacks, that, it lacks moral depth to actually, you know, sort of draw people towards it. So it needs something outside of itself. And technocratic governance is always looking for other sources of legitimation and the environment being one, one example where you kind of, you know, sustainability becomes this technocratic kind of principle. But the most important uh, sort of source that you rely on is the therapeutic ethos where you end up using the state and the institution of the state as a way of validating people, you know, recognizing people. It's, it's a, kind of the, what, what in Germany they call the politics of recognition. And through validating people, what you're doing in a sense is you're uh, encouraging uh, the flourishing of identity consciousness. And, and, and that becomes those two things work hand in hand. And that's why you can have a situation where in your neck of the woods, you go to Silicon Valley, you got this coexistence of this very narrow technocratic imagination and technocratic obsessions along with, you know, sort of the cultural politics of identity. The kind of two things have seamlessly merged and, and, and I think that's really what we're seeing today um, as being the dominant uh, sort of uh, elitist way of, 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 of running society. Right. It seems analogous to the way when I was growing up, the uh, right wing in America would have sort of its technocratic libertarian element. But in order to make that palatable or legitimize it, it had to do what we would call culture war red meat, you know, which was usually imbued with these uh, arch conservative Christian ideas because anybody who cares about the family is not going to support policies that destroy the family by making sure that the parents are never around because they have to work so much. So I'm wondering if this is sort of quote unquote, I guess I should say progressive version of that. It's a bit like that. Obviously, you're right to say that nobody ever falls in love with the free market. It's yeah. Not like, <laughs> it's not going to turn you on. Oh, my God, the free market. This is the high point of human civilization. So, you know, there too, you needed another source of legitimation. But I think what's very interesting when you look back upon it is that if you, if you actually look at the contemporary so-called liberal progressive narrative, they actually think that uh, the right wing, you know, sort of a neoconservatives and the later neoliberals were culturally you know, in hegemony, that they were hegemonic force in the, in the 70s and the 80s, but they weren't. Mm-hmm. What's really interesting is even at that point, you know, sort of, although they were able to dominate economic thinking, when it came to culture, they lost. And, and when you look back in American history, the first key event in this was the McCarthy period. Mm. Because although we look at the McCarthy period as, oh, the Red Scare and everything else, and that did exist, what's interesting is that McCarthy lost the culture war, right? Uh, I mean, for example, in, in the universities, McCarthyism was always on the defensive. And after a while, even within wider society, the kind of backward political ideals that he stood for you know, sort of were exposed and they were defeated. And from that point onwards, you'll find that not just the McCarthy type, but even conservatives in America were always on the back foot. 
Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're never in a position where they either had, you know, sort of cultural hegemony or intellectual hegemony or political hegemony. All those things uh, kind of eluded them. And in many respects, the debate that existed was about different sides of what was called the, the liberal center. Mm-hmm. In a sense, it's different wings, you know, having it out with each other. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it's why I've come to see sort of the demonization of Reagan as intellectually lazy, not to say that I particularly agree with anything Ronald Reagan did, but the conservative writer Christopher Caldwell pointed this out. Uh, He said that, well, Reagan was more a confirmation of certain elitist lifestyle elements of the 60s cultural revolt, because as he puts it, there's very little difference between do your own thing and every man for himself. And that that might recast the way we understand how these things work. I want to pivot quickly to one thing that has been nagging me, or a debate that's been nagging me for a while. And I mean, it's existed for quite some time. It comes up in Tocqueville, it comes up later. And that's like what we do with democracy and expertise. You know, you point out that there's a way where we arrogate political license to experts as a way to basically get rid of democratic influence. Um, And then you write, but you rightly point out that to say that you should get rid of expertise is naive in itself. How do we thread that needle? Would you say? I I think the pandemic is a very good example where these issues kind of come to the fore. I think expertise is quite important in certain domains of human life. And you know, you know, when I want to go, when I got a problem with my chest and I see a doctor, mm-hmm. I don't care about the doctor's politics or their philo- philosophical outlook. I care about their uh, medical expertise. That's, that's the only thing that really kind of matters. Um, and similarly, in other areas, I care about the expertise that they have in those areas, which requires specific scientific or other form of expert kind of training. I think the problem that we have to worry about is when expertise, you know, sort of is inappropriately applied to domains where they have no privileged insight or privileged authority. You know, so for example, we know that there is no such thing as political expertise, even though there's all these attempts by experts to demonstrate scientifically that experts are better at judgment calls than you and I or anybody else is. I think there are areas that are are, are essentially no-go areas for expert authority. These are areas where an expert has got the same status as every other citizen. It doesn't matter how many PhDs they have. There are areas where uh, what Machiavelli called the wisdom of the masses Mm -hmm. is actually what we ultimately rely on rather than uh, clever individuals or people with all kinds of degrees. So I do think it's possible to make that kind of distinction. Uh, And the way to do it is is not to be anti-expert, but essentially to uh, be against the attempt to take uh, epistemocratic authority into 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 the public, political and social, cultural domain. I think that's that's the way it seems to me to deal with this. Yeah. So what are some of these areas where you would say where expertise has no advantage when it comes to making political decisions? Well, for example, I mean, I think anything to do with human relations. So, for example, I've written quite extensively about child rearing and parenting, where I think the so-called parenting expert, you know, sort of uh, essentially creates more problems than they solve. Hmm. Um, I think you know, so-called relationship expertise, which is very big in America, <laughs> yes. you know, uh, is, is something that the world could do without, you know, without any negative consequences, just because these are not areas. When it comes to the domain of human relationships, the insights come from the experience that those people have through their, you know, through their relationship, rather than some um, pro forma, you know, off the cuff, you know, sort of uh, paradigm that you kind of bring in. Mm-hmm. In, in, into that kind of a mix. So when it comes to human relationships, particularly in the private domain, I think that expertise creates more problems than it solves. 
when it comes to public life, when it comes to the making of decisions about the future of society, I think we have to listen to what the experts say, evaluate their statements, and then make decisions, not as experts, but as citizens. And it seems to me that uh, both, you know, that the, the, the really important thing is to make a, a separation between human behavior in all of its different aspects and domains where expertise really counts for quite a lot. I think the most important area where we got to push back is psychology mm-hmm. because psychology has been extremely imperialistic in assuming authority for uh, areas of our lives that I think is just illegitimate, but psychology seems to move in everywhere, you know, sort of to kind of uh, govern uh, in, a, in a kind of fairly technocratic way day-to-day existence. Right. And it also seems to, especially with the psychological examples, you know, people say, well, we'll have um, therapy for felons provided by the state. And at first blush, you might say, yeah, it might be good for somebody to have tools for psychological understanding and that they can have a person that's safe to talk to you. But the way that that works is you think of the psychological relationship first and sort of ignore the fact that the state is like behind that and it's never going to be innocent of an agenda in that realm and can in fact be oppressive in new far more subtle ways than anyone could anticipate yeah i mean something i'm really worried about and because this happens not just just in penitentiaries happens in universities and all kinds of institutions where you are involved in the project of colonizing people's internal life you know, when you have, for example, like in many universities in England, also in other parts of the world, before you can register, you have, for example, a, a consent class where they, where they teach you what consenting means to, you know, sexual behavior. Well, I don't want, you know, my way of, of, of being as a, a sexual being being governed by this uh, invisible individual at the end of the Zoom who's telling me, you know, how should I behave? Because what we're doing on, in that situation is not just simply regulating people's speech, but the way we think. You know, they're telling us that we know better than you do what your thoughts should be. We know better than you do what is the right emotions are. And we're going to teach you that. And I think that kind of attitude is just about our right when a father or mother talks to a three-year-old. But anything outside of that, especially by a, a so-called kind of neutral, technically uh, technical person, is, is in my books quite illegitimate. Right. Well, and it also there's also maybe a political philosophical problem that happens there as well, in that it treats things as consensual that respond to some sort of contract relationship. But that's not necessarily true. And that does not eliminate the problems of power dynamics that it, that it says it does. And in fact, it can conceal them in more nefarious ways. You know, anybody who's ever worked a job knows that uh, if you as an individual, despite the fact that you've entered into a contract with your boss, try to appeal for more pay, you can quite quickly find yourself without a job by the end of that conversation, unless you've got some other type of support behind you. Right. So it doesn't even do what it says on the tin, as you might say. But even worse is that if you if you take the concept of a contract and you apply it to human relations, because that's really what we're talking about here, Mm -hmm. that a contract by definition conveys the implication of a conflict of interest. The reason why you have a contract is because you assume that you know the relation is going to be regulated. Mm -hmm. And therefore what you're doing is I think something even worse than what you're suggesting is you're formalizing relations that ought to be informal. Mm-hmm. And you because somebody has to enforce the contract. Exactly. And, 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 and uh, it, it's something that happens in the workplace where the spontaneous informal interaction between people is now micromanaged through this kind of contract. Mm-hmm. happens in universities where instead of having a, a free-flowing kind of dynamic of informality, People know there's a rule book behind their head that they got to talk to. And I think under those circumstances, you both diminish the quality of the relationship 
but also there's always an implication of somebody telling you what needs to be done, telling you how to behave or else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way my co-host and I, who, he couldn't be here today, I joke about it is we talk about America as a militarized HR department where it does feel like you're being, you're being manipulated in, in those ways. And that it becomes very hard to see. It's so subtle, which makes it even more tyrannical, I would say. You know, I think a response to that that I've heard often in America is that, well, if we just made things smaller, we would have more democratic control over them. But I think that forgets the history of the state's rights argument, which was born both of the American colonial experience and from the slave economy that existed in America. So smaller doesn't necessarily mean more democratic and has not meant that for American history. I'm wondering what you think the relationship between something like scale, let's say, and democracy is, and how we can think about that in productive ways. Well, it's a question I struggle with. Um, Obviously, we know that uh, scale is important in terms of face-to-face interaction. Um, Scale is important in terms of taking responsibility for decisions. Mm-hmm. and having people that can hold you to account. And obviously, an ideal scale for exercise of democracy would be a, maybe a slightly larger version of, of an Athenian city-state, where you have a combination of face-to-face meetings along with uh, decisions being taken in, in other, other domains. But to be realistic, that's not possible now. And therefore, I've drawn the conclusion that the largest... Uh, possible geographical space within which democracy can function is the nation state. It, you know, beyond the nation state, it, does, it cannot exist at all. And ideally, within the nation state, you have both an opportunity for community decision-making as well as for centralized policy-making. So, for example, one of the things that I've been arguing for relatively unsuccessfully (laughs) in this pandemic is that, you know, I've got no problem with the government making decisions that's based on epidemiological evidence. I've got no problems with, you know, know, the general policies that they make. But what I'm arguing for is that what you also need to have are opportunities for people to have uh, the ability to exercise their common sense and opportunities for people in communities to interpret the decisions that are taken by parliament in accordance with, with, with the life that they have, in accordance with the circumstances that they're faced with. So ideally, I think what you need to have is this uh, balance between allowing local context and local decision-making to have a degree of say in the way that laws and decisions are enacted in practice, along with you know sort of more centralized parliamentary decisions. Mm. But uh, I struggle with this because I know there is no you know sort of perfect solution with. So I'm I'm really open to experimentation on this score and to see you know what it is that uh, seems to work best. What is it that has the most most uh, educative you know, sort of uh, kind of consequence in terms of people's public imagination. Yeah, that makes sense to me. It's one thing I think about a lot as somebody who works in the policy area of things like energy. And we're now starting to realize all sorts of problems with the American electrical grid and things like that. And it's becoming clear that the electrical grid really needs to be centralized so that it can be stable. You know, and some people might say, well, you'd run roughshod over states' rights. And you say, well, to not do that would to put people in a material place of unfreedom where they can't keep the lights on and things like that. So I'm wondering also if there isn't a conversation that needs to be had on what we mean by freedom. Uh, there are, in fact, different things that provide or negate freedom and that that should be a public discussion that we figure out how to have. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very big question of... Um you know, how we realize, how we give meaning to freedom. I think that philosophically, there are uh, certain areas that I think are, you know, sort of beyond discussion, beyond debate. 
such as the freedom of speech, the freedom of expression. I mean, these things are really quite foundational on which all the other freedoms rest. Uh, I'm also wary of any arguments about trade-offs between freedom and security, mm. right? Or, or in the case of uh, health pandemic, between, you know, sort of health and freedom and all these things. I think that these are false trade-offs that exist that we have to be extremely wary of. But by and large, I, th I think that, you know, the kind of issues you raised are issues to do with common sense interpretation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you raise an area that's principally a technical issue that's got to be tempered by different conflicting interests. You know, how you kind of manage that in such a way that you have the, the, the most maximum uh, positive reactions to that. And I, and I, I, I think it's, it's something that we have to be very careful about because although states' rights has been misused but very often, uh, I've come to the conclusion that you do need states' rights. You do need some kind of uh, local uh, sort of uh, uh, authoritative domain mm -hmm. which protects you from you know, decisions that are made uh, outside of your control and, and which imp imp can impact on you very negatively. So you have to have some ways of balancing that. But you know, at the same time, you're right that there are certain issues like the infrastructural issue that are really you know, quite important and uh, you know, sort of a need to be resolved. I think that it's particularly the case in the areas you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Other areas are much more open to decentralization, to mm -hmm. there being a plurality of different ways of dealing right. with it. Right, that may, might be the advantage of the flexibility of democracy is that it allows for us to figure out how to negotiate these things in common with each other. Um, and to experiment, as you say, and to try to learn from those experiments. And then besides, this debate that I brought up goes all the way back to the founding with Hamilton and Jefferson. Um, you know, Jefferson or Hamilton thought that we should liquidate all of the state governments and turn them into electoral zones, which was quite yeah. an anti-democratic yeah. uh, perspective of zone. Before I let you go, and I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to speak with me, is what do you see right now for us as some of the greater threats to living a democratic life? And how can we push back and live democratic lives in spite of them? I think the, uh, for me, the key battles are in education. Mm -hmm. And in particular, uh, we have to somehow uh, challenge the way that young people are educated in schools and universities. And, um, and, and influence the education process in such a way that we adopt the habit of educating young people for freedom and independence. So they learn the habit of intellectual independence as part of their education, rather than in the very passive way that education is being carried out. Now that education essentially is about validating children, it's about making them feel good instead of challenging them and stretching them. And I think both, and I think child rearing and education are really key because uh, by the time you know, people become slightly older, in their late 20s and 30s, they would have acquired a lot of the prejudices and, and a lot of the uh, passive habits that we're instilling them at the moment. So I think the key battle for me is in the domain of socialization, where we've got to raise you know, and, and popularize many of the things that were already important in, in the classical times, you know, the virtues of courage, you know, the, the, the virtues of phronesis, mm -hmm. the importance of judgment. I mean, all these things are really quite important. And I think that especially educators got a very important responsibility in relation to this. And I think the second thing is we have to, I, a lot of people I know think the way that you and I are in terms of our discussion, but are extremely reluctant to open their mouth. Mm. And it's almost like they're self-censoring themselves, particularly in higher education. You know, I often get emails and say, Frank, I really agree with what you said, but I cannot say that. I always reply to them saying, look, you're not living in Stalinist Russia or Nazi Germany. You can get up and argue as well. The more, more of us that uh, are there to open our mouth and argue back, the, the more likely we can begin a dynamic, set emotional dynamic that begins to challenge some of this stuff. 
So I do think that we just need to get more people who, who know what the score is to have a little bit more courage to open their mouth and, 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 and in a sense kind of fight back, push back against all these things that we're seeing. Um, and I think finally, I think the quality of our ideas needs to be more sophisticated. I think that very often we haven't got the right kind of arguments. We often fall back on you know, old political categories. We're far too lazy. And I think it's really quite important particularly when it comes to dealing with things like uh, the cultural politics of our time, where they have such hegemony over everybody that we've got this sophisticated way of countering that. And it's important that we gain the moral high ground on the basis of our ideas, rather than always reacting. I think at the moment we're always reacting mm. rather than initiating. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that unless we can figure out a way to overcome the hurdle of the hegemonic presentism of the values we see everywhere today, we'll not get very far because that is, I believe the Achilles heel is the way in which in these battles, people try to tell you that the way they're saying it is some transcendental truth. And as you say, it can't be negotiated, can't be interrogated. And that it has in fact always been that way, you know, it does remind me, you know, of, uh, I remember Zizek telling the story of some Stalinist speechwriter who just had a huge file of different out of context quotes from Marx and Engels. And he would just go through and find them to work for whatever speech Stalin was giving. And it feels like in certain academics I've seen, especially on the left, that that is how they treat the cultural cash of theorists that they've inherited as if they have always agreed with each other throughout time <laughs> and they agree with whoever's forwarding the current agenda, but that's in fact false. Yeah. I, I like the expression you use hegemonic presentism. Really good. Yeah. Thank you. Well, Professor Ferretti, thank you so much for spending time with us. Uh, listeners, please go out and pick up the book. I highly recommend it. It's called Democracy Under Siege. Don't let them lock it down. It's out from zero books. You can find it there. And I know that you're quite prolific. Is there anything else that you've written that's come out of late that you would like our listeners to know about? I think there's a book I wrote last year called Why Borders Matter, which I feel very strongly about. It's quite an ambitious work in that it, lo it looks at the way in which uh, sort of uh, society has found it very difficult to maintain important physical and symbolic boundaries uh, in every domain of our life. The, the, the boundary between men and women, between children and adults, between humans and animals, you know, so between the private and the public. And I, I try to bring that all together as a way of providing a, a cultural antidote to the dominant uh, cultural uh, sort of uh, imagination of our time. Okay. Great. Thank you. Well, I'll let you get on with your day. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. Take care. Pleasure. Bye.